Hey, welcome to the Art Condition Podcast, a weekly show that will discuss the business, community, and often undiscussed stress and mental health concerns of being a professional artist or even a serious hobbyist. I'm Joby. I've been in the tattoo and illustration professions for 25 years. My co-host is Moose, a data analyst, social media manager, and art agent. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting the Patreon page and the show notes to help support the effort. Or if that's not an option, please like, subscribe, leave a good review, or just share with your friends. And definitely go visit the links of our guests on this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great day. This week, we are talking to Shane McInnes. Shane is a history professor and Twitch streamer. Every Thursday, he gives free history lectures on his stream, and his wide-ranging knowledge of our past is profound, and there are many valuable insights for artists. When we are creating visual imagery with the intent of telling a story and stir emotion, we are speaking to the common threads that unite us as human beings. Humans are storytellers. It is the defining characteristic of our nature, and history is the story of all stories. It is the story of those common threads. While it might be true that there is nothing new under the sun, there are still infinite ways that old ideas can be recombined in original ways, and history is the ultimate source for that inspiration. And thus, historians are the ultimate storytellers. So please listen to our conversation with Shane, and then follow him on Twitch. Shane is non-judgmental, impartial, and has a real talent for making the ancient stories he tells relevant and relatable. We would all be wiser and better off to hear people like Shane speak about the past, ask him questions, and find new insights, and find new ways to make more connections with our fellow humans. (laughs) I don't do this nervous. I talk for a living, man. That's right. And we're going to talk to you about everything that you talk about for a living. (laughs) um so thank you for that uh thank you for giving us some time today shane Uh, oh no man i'm super excited about this yeah you you've been mentioning it uh you've been looking forward to it and we've been looking forward to it as well so um let's dive in uh give us a little bit of uh personal background first uh tell us about yourself and what you do so my name is shane mckinnis i am a college history instructor I teach at a junior college here uh, in Mississippi, where I live. Um, I have previously taught high school and university level college uh, history classes before. Uh, so I, as soon as I graduated, I did his, uh, high school history for about six years and then started working on my master's and then switched it over to doing adjunct work, uh, just kind of as I could pick up classes. And that lasted for probably three or four years before I picked up the uh, full-time history gig that I have now. Uh, I have undergraduate studies in history and religion. My master's is in ancient imperial history, which I know is like a super niche little market, but that's what it is. Uh, And I'm currently working on another master's in sociology, which I'm going to finish up over the summer. Um, So that's me. The larger share of our audience are artists that are either you know in fantasy or sci-fi or they're artists that are uh you know interested in some level of of fantasy and sci-fi yeah um and 
that brings us, I think, to a good opening for um, you know the the connection to art, in that as fantasy artists or fans of fantasy art, um, Tolkien is the the, the cornerstone <laughs> right. of, of all of this. And I think so. I think that it would be interesting and fun to open talking about Tolkien uh, and how all of his stories relate to histories oh my god did i just do that that was totally unintentional <laughs> oh yeah man absolutely swear to god so <laughs> yeah so i mean tolkien is a, i think a, a for many reasons uh some of which i just mentioned tolkien is a great example you know of the connection between you know life and art um you know because as he inspires so many of us he was inspired by real life events right well can you give us a, a quick rundown of like where the godfather of, of, of fantasy <laughs> got his historical inspirations? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'll, I'll start off by saying that I am not uh, what a lot of people would call a, an official Tolkien scholar. There are people that spend, and I'm not joking, their entire lives uh, studying Tolkien stuff. I'm just a giant nerd that's read Lord of the Rings every summer since I was like nine. Um, <laughs> and and I really appreciate the stuff that he's done. So yeah, so Tolkien as a, as an individual grew up at a really important period of time in history. Um, you know, the late 1800s and early 1900s were a really big changing period of time. the The old imperial system was still moving around. You know, so you still have these big French and British and even American empires that are dominating politics across the globe. Of course, you have the Industrial Revolution, uh, sort of second wave of the Industrial Revolution, where uh, people are getting pushed out of jobs and there are lots of big social problems because of unemployment. And you see the rise of new political ideologies, things like fascism, communism, all of that starting to kind of bubble up as a result um, of the second kind of wave of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you have automation, uh, one of his big uh, things that he sort of talked about a lot in his personal letters was how fast things were changing. And like Tolkien never uh, liked riding in cars. Uh, even as a very old guy, he still rode bikes everywhere if he could. Um, he, of course, fought in World War I. Uh, he was at the Battle of the Somme, which was a, a really rough uh, period in the, world, uh, in the war. He was alive during World War II. He had a lot of opinions on people like uh, Hitler and Mussolini. He had a, a lot of ideas about Nazism. Uh, not not he was supporting Nazism. He, he wrote a lot against that. Uh, he, of course, witnessed nuclear weapons being dropped and did not care for that either. Uh, he didn't really like this idea of, of taking all of the stuff that we had and weaponizing science. Uh, he was a witness to a lot of the things that were happening in England around that time where after World War II, they were giving up their empire. And uh, he had a lot of ideas about economics and politics. So that, that period of time, if we're looking at the late 1800s and early 1900s, that, that was just a really active period of time anyway. And he just happened to live right in the middle of that. So, you know, that's kind of the backdrop of, you know, where he pulls a lot of his ideas from. How does that turn in? How does all that empire stuff turn into in World War Two and World War One turn into elves and dwarves and a dragon named Small? <laughs> uh, so 
that is actually not the direct source of that. So Tolkien's source, source material was not necessarily the events themselves, but the stuff that he read. And what ended up happening was that he had this interest in stuff like ancient writings, things that we would know, you know, Beowulf, the Viking sagas. Uh, there's a sort of a big Viking story called the Kalevala. Uh, he was a big reader of things like, um, oh, we've lost Moose. <laughs> it happens every now and just ignore it. Um, so he read a lot of medieval stuff as well. Things like Chaucer, um, some of the Arthurian leg legends, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, Song of Roland, that kind of stuff. And he was interested in that. And when he started writing, that was sort of the, the thing he was trying to emulate. And then all of the stuff that happened in the world around him just sort of added flavor to um, his love of historical writing styles. Because above all, he was a linguist. Uh, he learned Latin uh, while he was at home. You know, His parents taught him Latin when he was really, really young. Uh, he learned Esperanto, which is a language that a lot of people don't even know about. Uh, he made up languages with his cousins and friends when they were little. Uh, and he studied languages really, really extensively, even from a very young age. So, you know, he had this knowledge of Anglo-Saxon and Middle English and could translate all of this stuff from the original languages. And that really tied him into the whole, uh, the, the whole ancient world in a way. And one of the things that he was really trying to do is provide something that he didn't really think England had. So if you look at a lot of the other cultures uh, around the late 1800s, one of the things that's happening sort of as a larger macro um, movement is that a lot of countries were trying to find their identities. There's a lot of ethnic tension going on. These big empires are dominating other small groups. You know, So you have the Austro-Hungarian Empire that basically controls half of the Balkan Peninsula. But what about all of these other people that have their own identities, Serbians, Croatians, et cetera. What about all the people in India that are being controlled by the British? And so you have this movement towards cultural identities and this brought countries together like Germany and Italy that are actually really new. Now, they didn't really even unify until the 1870s. Uh, but all of these cult cultures started looking for their collective history. You know, so like you have these things like the Brothers Grimm, which were written uh, as a collection of German folk stories to sort of help create this German identity. But Tolkien didn't find that in England. There wasn't really a folklore or this unifying theme for England. The, the Irish had some in the Celtic stories. The French had some. The Germans had some. But there wasn't really anything that fit that very well for England. And he thought maybe he could be the one that would be able to fill this gap. Maybe he could write something that would be uh, on the same level as that and serve the same purpose as that. Uh, and what he ended up doing was falling into the fantasy genre instead of the folklore genre. So, And he didn't want to wait until uh, Harry Potter or Song of Ice and Fire was released. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, you don't have to wait for the, the international success. And that's one of the things that, um, that I think is so great about Tolkien. He really didn't ever expect to get popular. Uh, he didn't think that this was something that was going to get him there. And he even resisted it. You know, so he wrote The Hobbit and it was published in 1937. And it wasn't until 
uh, almost 20 years later that Lord of the Rings came out. And, you know, Hobbit came out and people were like, hey, where's the rest of this? You know, where's more stuff going on in this world? And he's like, I mean, that was just kind of a story, you know, that I wrote kind of for my kids. And I really don't know. And so he started it and he wrote some and then it sat for like a decade. And he basically didn't write much of anything on it. And his editors at the publishing house were like, go back and finish writing this stuff. You know, this is going to print us money. And he's like, eh. And that goes to show, you know, like, like work on your passion projects. Don't neglect that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I'm vaguely aware that, that token was always pretty insistent that his stories should not be taken as allegories. Right. Um, and <laughs> I, you know, and then there's like some, you know, debate there, whether, you know, we should or shouldn't, and that that's for another time. But I'm wondering, you know, to, this is more of like an art philosophy question than strictly a, a history question. But as a historian, I, I think that you could maybe lend some interesting insight to this. Um, it, it raises the question for me of, you know, to what degree an artist um, owns the impression that other people have of their art. What do you think well, about uh, that? Yeah, that, that's a question that, that we have to ask ourselves as historians and just as people a lot, uh, you can look at a source and, and, and before I go too much further, I'm not trying to imply some sort of you know existentialist uh, approach to interpreting sources by any means. Uh, but one of the things that we have to do when we look at a document in history is not just look at what it says, but look at who wrote it, when it was written, uh, whether or not, there was a specific purpose that it was being written. So we can get into this debate about whether or not something is stated or something was implied. And, you know, when it comes to art and writing, there's a certain point where it's yours as an artist or as a writer or as a creative individual. But once you let it out into the world, you're sort of allowing everyone else to have a free go at it. You know, if you don't want other people to have some sort of, you know, reaction to your your art, if it's a truly personal thing, don't let it out there. But when you put it out into the world, you are asking for others approval, maybe or maybe not. That's maybe that's not the best way of saying it. Uh, you are allowing for other people to interpret your work and you can go out into the world and you know tell people what you meant for it to be. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be that for them. You know, um, I look at a painting and I see one thing and one thing stands out to me. Um, and Moose and Joby look at the same painting and they see something else that stands out to them. Uh, but it, we're still looking at the same painting, right? And what we see as an individual might not be what the artist was intending us to look at. You know? so, and I think that's why art itself speaks to so many people. It's that we bring into this relationship with the artist our own histories, you know, our own biases, the results of who we are based on our choices and those choices of those around us. And when you look at a piece of art or consume a piece of art, you're forming a relationship with somebody through time and space. Uh, and all you can do is hope that it means something to them. Um, so on that note, um, yeah. The Hobbit, you said, was the hit, and mm -hmm. it 
went well before the Lord of the Rings came on. Of course, that had the, the lead up to it. But what was it that has there been any research as what about the Hobbit could be, you know, taken apart and uh, used as reference to people like the guide to how to make a book that people care about or <laughs> art that people care about? Uh, well, it was almost one of those things that was sort of a perfect storm. So uh, the, the fantasy genre itself is not very old. It really only comes from like the, the middle of the 1800s and it really didn't even get popular until the late 1800s and early 1900s uh, with people like George MacDonald and uh, Eric Erickson. But the, the Hobbit hit right at a period of time where there was a lot of very heavy and prevalent good versus evil, you know, cause this is us leading up to Nazi Germany and world war two. Uh, the bad guys in the story are very evidently the bad guys and the good guys are pretty clearly analogous to the British people or the common people. Uh, the plight of the regular guy that gets caught up in these big grand scheme of things. That's what a lot of people were feeling like, you know, uh, the average person was still very aware of World War One, and you know, ten million people died in World War One. It was the largest war that the the world had ever seen at that point. Europe was in tatters. Um, the population of England didn't get back to, you know, the pre World War One levels until like the 1980s. Uh, you know, so th there's still a lot of very real little guy gets to win which is a great thing. Uh, the big bad guy is the, the greedy thing that hoards all of the wealth. You know, we're, we're in the middle of the greatest depression economically that the world had ever seen. So the, the, the notes that the Hobbit hit were perfect for that time. But the way that Tolkien wrote was such that the stories that he told were open and applicable to basically anybody, you know, have, who has ever felt like they are, they are Bilbo Baggins standing in the presence of a dragon. You know, everybody's felt that overwhelming uh, enemy, that presence that's going to devour you. And we all hope that we can find something that gets us out of that situation. So Tolkien's telling stories that he knows apply to everybody across the board but that ties back into his history uh, as a as an analyst of ancient documents because the stories that we tell each other they they can have nuance you know and they can have different set dressings and they can be told in varying degrees of skill but a lot of the stories that we tell each other are a lot of the same things just over and over because you know regardless of when you live or where you live humans are humans you know if you find a human from two hundred twenty thousand years ago in Africa. They want the same thing that we want. You know, they want safety when they go to sleep at night. They want to be able to feed their family. They want to not have to fear every day that they're alive. You know, and and this concept that I think a lot of people miss in history, we have this tendency sometimes to look back and find these figures, and we sort of interact with them only as kind of abstract concepts. Like we talk about George Washington, you know. And he's this pillar of our history and we know all these stories about him, but he was a guy, you know, he had bad days. He woke up as president sometime and went, I don't really want to do this. You know, he got sick. He, you know, he goofed off and had fun with his friends when he should have been doing stuff that, you know, was more serious. 
but that's true of everybody in history, right? Human beings are human beings. It doesn't matter when we are. We just have different toys and, you know, fancier stuff. So if I'm going to oversimplify your answer, it was high quality content. It was relatable. <laughs> and it was in regard to a popular phenomenon that was going on in the culture. Yeah, absolutely. But that's the I, too long didn't read version. The, the TLDR. But the interesting thing, though, is that Tolkien didn't have that as an intent going into it. So it was. I, oh, man, it's hard to know if there's like. If part of the key to the success of a story is not intending for it to be a success, you know, <laughs> and just like. Yeah, uh, there, there's a there's definitely a roll of the dice thing about any time you let something out. Yeah, so, but but it does make me wonder, though, you know, if we can sort of finesse it a little bit, you know, and not we're, we're not going to be able to game the system uh, necessarily when it when it when we're talking about human consciousness as a um, a, a general idea. But you know, you're, you're you're talking about you know the sort of the things that were happening in Tolkien's times and like these you know big historical moments and you know how that relates to us as a, individuals because we all you know we all feel these these similarities so is there a um you know for an artist that maybe might want to get more familiarity with you know kind of like what those larger underlying patterns are is there like a, is there a school of history or, or a school of study that one could look at and learn from that does deal with those archetypes? Uh, there's a little bit in a lot of different fields. Uh, so if you're looking at just what makes humans humans, you know, it's anthropology. Uh, if you're looking at what makes humans form societies, that's sociology. And if you're looking at how we've messed around since we started, that's in history, you know, uh, but if there's there's not a specific discipline, I, I don't think that would basically teach you how to. Well, I don't know. Maybe if you got a degree in something like literary criticism or source criticism, uh, but that stuff is is hard to find good schools in. Uh, and schools expensive. Are, yeah, so. schools expensive, and there aren't many places that offer really heavy degrees and stuff like source criticism. And that's not going to be something you're going to go be able to do, you know, as a, as a bachelor's degree, that's going to be something that you're maybe not even going to get into until you get to like the doctoral level. Uh, what about um, some more casual uh, ways to find this information, whether it be like YouTube channels or books, what would you recommend that artists can look into without spending a hundred thousand uh, dollars? Honestly, you can find a lot of this stuff just online that this is the, the world as we know it has changed in such a way that there are so many things available for free. You know, you can go find translations of all of these ancient documents. You can find uh, critiques on them that have been published. Uh, people have, especially in the history world, people have started doing a lot of stuff. That's really good scholarly work that they've been releasing sort of on their own. Uh, there is a a lot of gatekeeping that gets done when it comes to getting published in history journals and things like that. So a lot of people that are out there have just resorted to sort of doing kind of what I do on Twitch, which is 
just bringing history to people directly, you know, so uh, people like extra history or crash course, things like that offer really good introductions to a lot of this stuff. Uh, there are, there are some free courses that you can get into at places like Khan Academy um, that offers kind of overview of topics. Those are of varying levels of quality. Uh, a lot of people want you to pay for their stuff up front, which I can totally respect. I, I'm not trying to denigrate that at all. Um, but if you're really just trying to get into how do we, how do we know what we know and how do we approach these topics? Uh, I, I don't want to say that it's not something that everybody can do because I do believe that it is, but to get good at it, takes some real dedication you know it's not just necessarily something that is kind of an armchair passion unless you're really going to be with it for the rest of your life and uh, and i know that's that sounds really exactly like the kind of people that i was talking against at the beginning uh saying like no this is my field you can't walk in here and just do this off the street uh and that's not what I mean at all. I do think that everybody can appreciate history and everybody can appreciate sociology and anthropology and stuff like that. Um, but to figure out what's the, what, what's good and to figure out what's valid and what's provable uh, is a bit of a developed skill. Yeah. I don't think uh, most of our viewers are going to, or listeners are going to try to get a, um, a, t a career in history so much as they are to right. use that information that they do find, whether it's valid or invalid to inspire their works. Well, I mean, I tell my students all the time, go to Wikipedia. Um, I go to Wikipedia all the time. The, the, the idea that Wikipedia is a joke is not really a joke anymore. Uh, it's one of the most highly edited websites that's out there. Now there's a lot of opinion on it. And if you just look at Wikipedia and that's as far as you go, um, you might end up with some biased information, but hey, it's a great place to start. Uh, one of the things that I tell my students to do all the time if they're looking for sources for a paper is go see what Wikipedia cites. You know, go see what you know. Roll down to the bottom, look at the footnotes, see what they cited, and then go find that book. Or you know, if it's an ancient document, Google that guy. You know, in most of the big sources from the ancient world are translated in English. You can find them online. Um, you know, stuff that I used for my thesis is now completely for free online. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I have in mind, you know, more the tools for breaking artist block and writer's block and, and things like that, you know, the, uh, the, um, uh, kind of be, uh, becoming an armchair historian or listening to, you know, anthro anthropological, sociological, historical podcasts you know and youtube channels and stuff that that sounds like from what you're saying it sounds like those are good places to sort of like have going as like background radiation uh you know while you're working as an artist because that's it's i it sounds like a great place to fill the idea bank you know like oh absolutely and looking uh, for inspiration and reference yeah totally uh, th there's so much stuff out there you know everybody that's ever existed has a culture, um, you know, and we know a lot more about it now than we used to. And there's so much stuff to just go hang out with. Um, you know. And I'm probably 
uh, and this is going to sound weird, but because I do a lot of my own research, I'm probably not so great when it comes to sort of the what's out there in the general sense kind of thing. And I know that's weird and makes me sound very stodgy, but I mean, (laughs) I've, (laughs) I, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time crawling around for history podcasts um, because I basically, if I want to do something, I go grab a book off the shelf, which sounds weird, but history <laughs> is work sometimes, you know, and when I do that all day, sometimes I don't want to spend all afternoon listening to a history podcast. Oh I yeah. Go play a video game or watch Joby draw something. Fair, uh, fair enough. I, yeah. That's, that makes total sense. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, whatever you spend doing all day, that's not what you yeah. want to do necessarily in your free time, um, unless you're me, and then you are weird. Um, <laughs> but uh, with this idea in mind, you know, of uh, of of art, writing, music, for that matter, you know, the ones that like hit big at the times that they do, you know, really nailing the zeitgeist, zeit zeitgeist, zeitgeist, yeah. zeitgeist. <laughs> um, there's so here's prob- a trick for German. If you have an E and an I together, uh-huh. you don't say the first one, you say the second one as a long one. I'm going to so come back C-E-I-T-G-E-I-S-T. and listen to this podcast again just for that. <laughs> I, I, can't, I couldn't keep track of that while you were saying it, but I like it. Um, so I, when we're thinking of archetypes and, you know, and like big picture systems, there's probably like nothing bigger than religion and politics right and it seems from my point of view that religion and politics have probably had like the biggest influences on art of like anything that to um, does to your mind is like anything even come close as those two is there anything (laughs) else out of that it's like death and taxes not really uh and to be completely fair if you look at and this is going to get real kind of deep in the weeds here and very big picturey kind of stuff. Yes. But if you look at human society, when we figure out how to grow food and we can stop being hunter gatherers, the first two things that show up are religion and politics. Uh, and, you know, I will say though, what we have to remember is that even though religion and politics show up first after we city, you know, settle down in cities, we had art and music and language for hundreds of thousands of years, certainly, you know, before that, because art and music and language are what make us people that this is the way that we communicate with each other. This is the way that we pass down our knowledge. This is the way that we try to explain how we feel on the inside to other people and make connections with them, you know, but yeah. So if you look at art prior to that, it's fairly primitive. You know, you have your cave paintings and you have your, hand outlines and you have some statues and things of that nature. But when you start getting into the civilized world where you can specialize in something where everybody doesn't have to farm, you know, where you hit that point where you make more food than you need uh, and people can specialize. The first two things that really take off are art and politics. You know, the biggest guy starts saying, I don't have to farm anymore because I'm going to beat everybody else up in the village. So I'm now the chief and the old person that understands a little bit more science goes, well, guess what? So I'm now the conduit with the gods and I don't have to work either. Um, and there's actually a lot of debate in the history world about which one of those came first, uh, the religion or the history. Uh, 
I, I'm sorry, the religion or the politics. I'm a pretty big fan of the concept that religion came way before that. Yeah, that would make sense. That's a whole other esoteric world of arguing and we have to do a lot of speculation and stuff. And also a lot of like definitions of like what constitutes a religion and what constitutes politics because both could have been around in certainly right so you know but we get the first writing based around religious stuff Uh, the earliest writing systems that we have in the ancient world uh, sumerian uh, cuneiform and egyptian hieroglyphics Uh, that stuff starts in the temples Uh, the first written narrative of anything that we have is a hymn to one of the gods in sumer from like 3500 bc yeah so when you get to the point where you're specializing, you also want to decorate your stuff, which is where, you know, your art comes in and you start getting uh, patrons from either the religion or the government that are going to pay you to decorate themselves, uh, decorate the, the palaces that they live in. Uh, one, of the, the <laughs> one of the greatest examples of this, I think, is uh, ancient Assyria. Uh, when the Assyrians came out really big in the Iron Age and were beating everybody else up, the... Um, the emperors started carrying around artists with them when they went on uh, war campaigns. <laughs> and uh, they would get the artists to kind of sit out on a hill while they were ransacking this city and just draw what they saw. Um, and you go back to these palaces in the capital cities and you walk down this long hallway to get to the emperor. So you walk in this front door and you have to walk through this imagine, uh, imaginarium where all of the walls on both sides of this gigantic hallway are just full of these pictures from Tiglath Pileser wrecking this city. Uh, here's him after he killed all these people and piled their heads up. So he's sitting on a giant pile of skulls. Uh, here's him flaying everybody alive. And these were court artists that were tasked with drawing this stuff. Like, hey, draw a picture of me knocking down the walls of this city with my giant battering ram. Uh, so you have sponsorships of art and I know that's a very kind of brutal way to look at art, but I mean, it's all propaganda and stuff, but you know, we have art and politics and religion in this same little circle, uh, going all the way back to the beginning. Well, um, Oh shoot. I just thought lost my train of thought. Um, that's cool. Well, religion and politics having such a big influence and you know if we can i think agree that there isn't necessarily anything new under the sun uh, you know all art is derivative um could would we then be able to say that all of our inspiration in one way or the other can all be traced back up to religion and politics um i say that art comes from the the human condition you know uh there are there are pieces of all of us, regardless of whether or not we're introverts or extroverts, that that need connection with other people. Uh, and I think that's one thing that has become really evident over the last year and a half or so, um, with people not being able to get in contact with each other and having to you know stay in lockdowns and stuff. But one of the the ways that we try to get in touch with other people is is art and being creative. You know, we have these ideas that are inside of us. And we want to get them out into the world so that other people can can identify. Uh, we create these these societies of ideas, uh, you know. 
And it just so happens that two of the biggest things in who we are are what we believe in, you know, what we believe politically and what we believe religiously. That's a lot of our identity. So, you know, we're clearly going to relate to people based on our similarities and our differences, but how we get that stuff out is through our creative process, right? You know, so everybody is capable of creating. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, something that is going to be consumed by somebody else, but, you know, we all started off drawing, you know, every little kid gets the crayons, right. And does the scribbles. And, you know, I always point out when I'm talking to people, uh, especially when I'm talking to my students is that if you give a kid a crayon, they're going to draw before they write letters, you know, uh, they're going to draw scribbles or pictures, or they're going to, you know, start trying to do stick figures or the sun up in the corner of the piece of paper. You know, they're going to try to get what they experience out on paper before they figure out that I can draw certain squiggles that relate to the words that I'm saying. You know, so there's a there's a condition with all of us to to get what we have inside outside and let other people experience that. So, yeah, politics and religion both play into art. And yeah, everything kind of can go back to that. But it's not because politics and religion are like that. It's just because we all encounter that same sort of stuff. Yeah. No, I have this like um, perhaps naive delusion that I can somehow break out of that. Like I can get <laughs> get rid of all the influences, you know, cultural influences and, and make something pure, man. But actually, yeah, I, then you I, have to just be Stephen Pollock and go into the distal. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, Jerry <laughs> painting stuff. Right, right. right. So I thought I remembered uh, what I was uh, going to say um, when you were talking before, you know, about the rise of religion. The first thing that happened after agriculture was the the, the domination of religion and politics, um, you know, but there, there's been art, you know, well before that. It's not like religion and politics invented art. But one thing that I've always thought of that was interesting is that, um, you know, for the 200,000 yeah, 200,000 some odd years that humans were around and, and making art. It wasn't until, you can correct me if this is actually inaccurate. It, it, my understanding is that it wasn't until the Renaissance that we actually started figuring out things like perspective, or I shouldn't say figuring out, getting interested in things like perspective, um, you know, like strict human proportion, you know, things like, I don't even know like what the group of technicalities that you, you would call that, but do you, do you, do you have a sense of like why that is or what precipitated that? Well, uh, I would say that it's not necessarily the first time that humans have done that. It was just the, the best time that humans had done that. Mm -hmm. you know, so if you go back and look at ancient art, uh, the, the concept of proportion and shadow and lighting, stuff like that had been done before, but mostly by cultures that had evaporated hundreds and hundreds of years before the Renaissance. Right. So if you look at art in Europe, after Rome falls, uh, Rome collapses in 476 in the West, uh, all of the big countries were run by people that did not have high-level specialized artists. And that started becoming a, a, a thing again in the medieval period, but they were basically starting from scratch again. You know, uh, they also didn't know how to build arches. They couldn't build 
uh, really big ceilings anymore because they had lost all the knowledge that Rome had. Because you have to remember that when Rome collapses, you you have all these barbarian tribes like the you know the Vandals and the Goths and all these different people that who did not have native skilled artisans like the Romans did. Uh, Rome was allowed to have that because they had this high level of uh, specialization and trade and stable governments and things like that that allow people to do it. But if you go and look over in places like China and India and Japan, they didn't really have that same interruption. Um, you know, cultures in China have endured more or less in the same kind of longer arc since, you know, the 2500s BC. Uh, so when Europe gets into this stuff, they're not necessarily uh, reinventing the wheel per se. What they're doing is they're finally figuring out that there are other influences out there and trying to go and find those. And then when they figure that stuff out, then they decide to try to do it better. And they are also doing that in the same sort of movement with this larger concept of uh, how to understand the world, right? So we have this scientific inquiry that starts and we're trying to formalize all of our concepts into ways that can be uh, explained and valued and ranked and ordered and measured. So you figure out how to do light and then you figure out how to do proportion. And the, the stuff that they're doing though is based on a lot of older stuff, you know? So if you look at a Greek sculpture uh, from one of the big, you know, high Greek periods of time in the, you know, maybe the 400s or something BC, uh, that was done with an incredible level of realism. Uh, these people in the Greek world got in trouble for digging up bodies and stuff and, and measuring stuff, just like the people in the Renaissance did. Uh, but they had that knowledge and it was lost in the West for so long that it sort of became, I don't know, uh, almost a fairy tale. So the Renaissance itself was not building from scratch. It was recovering what had been lost and then making it better. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And I, and I misspoke earlier. Well, I, yeah, I was referring to proportion and perspective. And then I said something to the effect of like, well, I wouldn't know what to call that category of, of technicalities. And I, I was trying to intentionally avoid the, using the word fundamentals. And that's what they yeah, are, yeah. you know, but that just seems like super Eurocentric to be like, well, the Renaissance <laughs> figured out fundamentals, you know? Well, a lot of that stuff was still going on too. Uh, and you have to remember that the reason the, the Renaissance even started was that all of these European people from the West started traveling over to Asia and traveling over to uh, places like the Holy Land that they, you know, went to in the Crusades. You know, they went to some of these people from France and Spain and Italy end up in Constantinople uh, to go help out the, the Byzantines in the Crusade. And they're, they're just completely blown away. They're like, holy crud, how did you guys build all this stuff? And they're like, man, that's, that's a dinky building. You should see this one over here. And they go see Hagia Sophia, which was the largest enclosed building for uh, like 2,000 years. And they're like, holy crud, what, what's up with this stuff? And they're like, man, you, you can't build a dome? And they're like, man, we haven't built a dome in 300 years. So then they start bringing all of this stuff over and they run into uh, Arabic math and they run into uh, Islamic art and they run into the, the old Greek and Roman stuff that people in the Byzantine Empire uh, had never lost. 
And then they realized how far behind they were. And one of the reasons the Renaissance hit so hard was they realized how far behind they were. And then they decided to throw their money behind it. You know, so it's like, we need to catch up. We're behind and we need to be cool like those people are. And <laughs> how can we be cooler than those people are? And a lot of the Renaissance, and this is going to sound rude to the people in the past, but you know, they're dead. Uh, a lot of the Renaissance was driven by rich people wanting to have things to show off. You know, the Medici family. Say it isn't so. I know. It's crazy. You know, people like Leonardo da Vinci and uh, Michelangelo Bunarati and Bernini and you know anybody named after or anybody that a Ninja Turtle is named after. <laughs> All those people were funded by super rich people that wanted to show stuff off, you know. Uh, but to do that, they had to be able to pay people to learn all that stuff and then perfect it. And that took a lot of time. And the interest wasn't there during most of the medieval period because the political situation wasn't stable. You know, for, for art and stuff like that to flourish, you have to have a piece that exists uh, that allows things to happen. In the ancient world, you didn't get to do art if you were worried about where your next meal came from. Uh, the support system that we have today in our world, even for people, and, and this is going to sound rough and I don't mean it to sound rough, but even for people that are what we might call today starving artists, uh, they have it today a, a lot easier than the people in the ancient world did. You know, you, you, we, we do not know how many people that were just as smart as Leonardo da Vinci that died on a farm in France because they never left more than 30 miles from their home. Uh, and just like today, we don't know how many talented artists there are out there because they live in impoverished areas, but we know more of them exist now because we have things like the internet and we have technology that gets your stuff out there. And you can be an artist living in Cambodia and selling your art to people in New York on the internet now. Uh, and our world today has offered so much more to people that just did not exist back then. And when you're at a constant state of war, when your country is you know, fighting these hundred years long wars against themselves. The number of people that have the opportunity to sit down and do art is really low, you know? So when the rich people figured out we need to make art a thing, then it became a thing. And I know that sounds super classist, but that's exactly what it was. I, I, yeah. I mean, it, it kind of is what it is. And, but I mean, that's a perfect place to, you know, get on a soapbox for a moment, you know, and go back to talking about the democratization of everything. You know, you're talking yeah. about somebody living in Cambodia, Indonesia, you know, Malaysia. Uh, yeah. Sell your stuff to, you know, people that live in the developed worlds, you know, and, and sell it to them for what the people in the developed worlds are selling it for. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so off stepping back art, off art has a value. Yeah. And it doesn't matter where you're making it. It has a value on the internet, just like you're making it in New York city or LA or Washington or Mississippi. You know? I, listen, a fucking historian said it. Okay. People like it, this is somebody <laughs> that, that, that does this for a living. Now, now you can't argue with me anymore. Um, but I'm tempted to I ask if, uh, I'm tempted to ask if uh, like Leonardo da Vinci was undercutting uh, his peer by 10%, but I don't want to get into that. So we just leave it as a joke. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci was notorious for not finishing stuff. Uh, he would take money from people and start stuff and then get really bored with it and want to do something else. And they would have to hound him like crazy to finish things. There are, there are about six or seven of his really, really famous paintings that are beautiful at the top. just absolutely stunning. And then pencil at the bottom <laughs> because he started and he was just like, I don't really feel like painting St. Jerome anymore. That's enough. 
Um, I do want to uh, circle back around to token <laughs> just for the sake of, of asking um, and getting into the next series of questions. Um, in our currently, I feel like in, in the in the West, at least um, fantasy, you know, the idea of like fantasy art and then to the degree that sci fi is influenced by fantasy which i think that it is not to start that flame war but um it all kind of defaults to token you know he like i said he's the godfather right. or, or token derivative settings um and we're, we're just talking about medieval europe before token was medieval europe like the default setting for fantasy work fantasy art or uh books and stuff yeah so the and i kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier but one of the things that we have to kind of remember in scope is that fantasy didn't really exist until the sort of mid 1800s as a genre. Uh, before, before that, that it was just fiction. Like, well, you, you had mythology and you had folklore and you had fairy tales. And there are there are nuances between all of those that I would love to get into if you would like me to. Uh, but. <laughs> thank you. Uh, let me let me answer this question, and then we can circle back to that. Okay. Uh, so, the people that started the fantasy genre were almost all people that had this sort of classical studying history. And when I say classical, I mean here that they were studying the Greek and the Latin, and they had knowledge of languages and things of the past, which was sort of a a growing cultural thing because again, th there's just larger interest in your cultural background. This is when the world is developing concepts like nationalism and cultural identities. So this was sort of a, a vogue concept at that time. So you have people like uh, George MacDonald. Now George MacDonald is uh, a guy from the UK. He is considered the first actual writer of um, a fantasy he wrote in the like the mid 1800s uh there's a book of his called fantasties it's uh, spelled with a ph and two t's in it for some reason um and he was this kind of guy you know he was uh, a linguist he was a scholar he had a lot of studying stuff he actually had gone to college for uh things like chemistry and physics and ended up going and being a preacher for a while and he just didn't like that so he sort of wrote on the side but because his interests were in these things like ancient and medieval writings, when he started writing his fantasy stuff, he tried to mimic that on the same themes and concepts that were in those other uh, writings. You know, so he had read the the King Arthur stuff, you know, and he had read all of the the Knight's Tale stuff and the the you know, the, the romances like Don Quixote and songs of Roland and things of that nature, which were all set in that kind of high medieval world. And that was a really big influence. And so then you have people like, um, Eric Edison who started writing in the late 1800s, uh, published a book in 1925 called the worm Ouroboros, which was sort of the first really kind of popular fantasy book that got around into a lot of the big echelon circles of writing. Uh, he was actually kind of friends with Tolkien. They were in the same little writing group called the Inklings. So 
he was a similar kind of guy. They, these people are ones that studied European uh, histories. They had read the sagas of the Vikings and they had read the uh, fairy tales of the, you know, like the Ulster cycle of Celtic mythology and things like that. Uh, So they had that repository of myth and folklore and fairy tale. And when they started doing their own writing, the the key shift here, the the difference between fantasy and other genres, uh, and I'll kind of loop this into the the previous question uh, or the 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 rabbit hole here. Mm-hmm. The difference between fantasy and myth and fantasy and folklore is that fantasy is set in a completely made up uh, world. So a myth is uh, a story that people created over a long period of time and as a group, you know, so as a culture or as a civilization or as a society, a group of people tried to explain something in the natural world, uh, maybe that they didn't understand, maybe that they didn't know where it came from. You know, so we, we try to explain why um, an eclipse happens. And so we have the story that the sun is a God and the moon is a God and the sun is chasing the moon. And sometimes they get really close to each other and catch each other. And that's a myth, right? So it's set in our world, but it explains something that we don't understand. Um, and a folklore is something that's set in our culture that explains why we are like we are, you know, that has a specific tie into who we are as an individual. Uh, so, you know, we have folklore in America. We have people like John Henry, who was the steel driving man, uh, who fought against the, the automated steam trail and, and beat it. But then he blew up, uh, you know, he, his heart burst. Uh, but that's a, that's a folklore and a legend of our culture. And that explains that, you know, we are hardworking people. And there were people working themselves to death at that time to try to beat uh, automation. And they, they worked really hard and they might have been better, but they couldn't beat it overall. Uh, and then you have fantasy, which is written by one person uh, for a specific reason that is set in a world that is not ours, that has its own rules and with the knowledge that it's not real, you know? So when people do stuff like myths, they were explaining things that are weird and fanciful and have elements that we might call, you know, fantasy elements, but the people were trying to explain something that they thought really might've happened. You know, when we talk about uh, any of the big cultures that have creation myths, they thought that's really how the world got here. You know, and there might have been some people that didn't believe it 100%, you know, the people that were like, oh, I don't really think the world came about that way. But there were people that were basing their knowledge on this story. And that's why you get a lot of people that get real close to this stuff. Um, one of the most angry that I've ever seen some people, uh, I was at a... Um, I was at a symposium where there were some people talking and I live again in Southern Mississippi. It's a very Christian conservative area. And one of the uh, primary speakers started talking about Christian mythology. And that triggered a whole bunch of people in the audience because they were like, what do you mean mythology? This is stuff that really happened. Uh, And, you know, this is, the way that ancient people would have felt if you called their stories mythology. You know, like if you walked up to a, a Japanese guy and said, hey, you know that story about uh, Susanoo and Amaterasu? That, that didn't really happen. That was just all made up. That would potentially really offend them. But that if you walked up to 
uh, Tolkien and said, Hey man, Lord of the Rings, that really didn't happen. He'd be like, yeah, I know. (laughs) So there's a difference in the fantasy genre. That's not the the exact same as folklore and mythology and and stuff like that. So, So, uh, going back to Tolkien, because you just brought him up. Yeah. He did a whole backstory thing that he intended not to be published. The Silmarillion. Uh, right. Silmarillion. Similarian, 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 yeah. Similarian. yeah, that thing. <laughs> All right. Uh, so he was basically creating his own, at that point, it was his own uh, version of a mythology. Right. That, that the people of that planet, would, uh, of that setting, would believe mm-hmm. was the truth. Correct. So would it be worthwhile or uh, fr- uh, too much work to uh, do that when someone was cr- considering creating their own uh, fantasy novel or fantasy setting? Yeah. So if you're trying to set up something that's going to be Tolkien-esque, you know, or if you're trying to accomplish something like that, there are big benefits and there are big pitfalls. and. Uh, I, I don't talk about this a whole lot, but I, I am an author. I have published several things, uh, uh, fictional stories. They're all historical fiction um, and several short stories, novels. Uh, anyway, I, I, that's a whole other world that I don't really talk about too terribly much. So I, I do have a little bit of credibility talking about writing here and world building. But the the biggest thing about world building that Tolkien would tell you is, is just to be genuine. You know, world building is it's a task. It's not something that really happens just by a coincidence. You know, uh, and, and details are important, but you don't have to you don't have to have the entire thing decided beforehand. So if we're talking about Tolkien, the first thing that he actually wrote set in what he called Middle Earth was this bit of poetry uh, that went on to be part of the Silmarillion. And he wrote that uh, when he was recovering from uh, trench fever at when, when he got called back from uh, World War I. Uh, he got called back. He, he was a lieutenant, and he was at the Somme, and he got really sick and got called back and was put on basically a desk rotation until he got better, but he never really got better. It took him a, a couple of years to kind of recover completely. So they basically put him under medical discharge. He was still part of the military, but he wasn't ever going to get to go back to the front line. Um, and in the meantime, a lot of his friends were out there dying. And so he started working on this stuff to try to work through some of these feelings. I suspect this is me kind of shooting back uh, a little bit as to interpreting Tolkien, but he started writing stuff way different than the Lord of the Rings. So the, the first stories that he wrote was actually part of the Silmarillion called the fall of Gondolin. Um, and he wrote another little story that was part of this larger thing called the lay of Luthien and Baron. And then he wrote another kind of story called uh, the children of Hurin or the story of Turin Tarambar. Um, but none of that is the Hobbit and none of that is Lord of the Rings. So he was world building even back then, but he didn't have all of it filled in. Right. So he did not have every single blank filled in. And if you are trying to do world building and you're going at it from the position of I have to have every single blank filled in ahead of time, you're never going to start writing. Right. You're, or you're never going to start drawing. If you decide, well, you know, I have to create 
a series of pictures and I want these pictures to be based in this fanciful setting. And I want to have a certain theme through all of them. And I'm going to develop different races for all of these people. But then what do those people wear? What do those people live in? How do those people uh, communicate? Where do they, do they stay in this city or do they stay in that city? And, and you can, you can do that forever, but you have to start and you have to get something out. Right. And Tolkien himself was notorious for writing stuff and then going, eh, I don't really like that. And he would revise it or completely delete it or edit it or move it around in his timeline. So even as he was writing stuff, he didn't have it all nailed down, right? So you need to know enough about what's going on to make it convincing, but you also don't have to paint everything so clearly that you end up in a corner and can't move around, you know? So that's, that's what I would say to that. That's encouraging. It, it says to me that there's still time for any of us to become the next token. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and he was, he didn't publish a, a really big book like that until, you know, so he started writing stuff like that in like 1919 and the Hobbit didn't get published until 1937, you know, so that's almost 20 years later. Um, so now today, uh, the, relationship between oh wait before i go there i wanted to just make sure that we did go down that rabbit hole that you were excited about was that that you were kind of like explaining the difference between like myth and yeah, fantasy yeah. and stuff that's that what was, i was talking okay, about was the, the differences between the genres yeah yeah yeah, yeah. cool just wanted to make i mean sure if you, if you want to circle back to that and had any questions i can i, I can ramble about that forever man <laughs> i would love to talk to you about that for the next hour but we still have a few other questions <laughs> um so I told you guys before we got started that you're going to have to cut me off eventually. Um, I, I have a, a couple of like kind of super nerd questions though. Um, oh yeah, go for it. Th these are my kind of topics. I've always kind I'm of I'm the guy you bring with you to bar trivia. Well, this is just purely self indulgent because I've always oh, okay. I've always I've always wondered like where do like the big fantasy elements come from? Like where where do we get even just the idea of a dragon or a wizard? Yeah. Where do, where does that <laughs> stuff come from? So dragons are dragons actually have this really interesting historical overarc um, because they start off the, the 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 emphasis or I guess I shouldn't say the emphasis the uh, the inspiration for dragons comes from serpents right and even even a lot of ancient documents if you read the mythology um, you hear them referred to as serpents and they're really big serpents. But in the ancient world, you have this concept that, you know, snakes and serpents are wise. They represent a change in growth because they shed their skin. Um, they have all sorts of knowledge. You know, so it, it, if you look at the earliest story that we have, that's a kind of a narrative beginning to an end story is the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, at the very end of the story, Gilgamesh is denied his. Um, his goal because a serpent steals uh, his his magic plant that's going to give him immortality. And of course, you have the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Uh, you have all these these things that show up, and over time, that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it has a lot of influence on you know Greek mythology and Roman mythology. But there's also, and this might seem kind of weird, but ancient people found dinosaur bones. You mm. know. Um, they kill a lizard and they look at the skull and go, Hey, that looks like this. And then they find, you know, a dinosaur bone and go, what is that? 
oh, that must have been a lot bigger lizard or a much bigger animal that did this thing, you know, so that's part of it as well. Uh, but what we know as a modern dragon, you know, with with fire breathing and wings and flying and stuff like that, that's that brings in a lot of Asian influence as well. Uh, Asian dragons are the ones with the big honking legs and arms that fly around and, you know, basically look like Falcor from the Neverending Story. Um, so what we know of is a blend of ancient Mesopotamian and Greek and Indus culture uh, and Roman stuff and Asian stuff all mixed together to get the idea of a dragon that we would recognize as, you know, the big flappy thing with Smaug kind of characteristics that uh, Steve Nigerian or Justin Gerard might draw. Um, but wizards come from uh, ancient people that knew science, you know? So we, we talked about those people that were in your, your group that understood how to heal you. And uh, for most of what we know as Western culture and for most of the culture of the world, science and magic are basically the same thing, you know? Um, so you have certain people that understand that the natural world provides certain things and they hold on to this knowledge and they're able to do things that other people can't. And because ailments and sickness in the ancient world were so much to do with the emphasis of evil spirits on your body or the spiritual world attacking you, um, you know, the guy that could get rid of the, the ailment is not only providing you relief, but is also, uh, has some sort of power over the natural world. Um, you know, and this is kind of a joke that you, you see pop up in, in movies like, you know, like the Thor movie where they're like, Oh yeah, it's this, this is just, uh, science is just magic that you understand. Um, but wizards are the people that, you know, are kind of possessors of this secret stuff. Uh, if you look at, Wizards and Tolkien, uh, they are actually sent by the gods to Middle-earth with secret knowledge to help people and heal the hurts of the land and stuff like that. So that idea that they are somehow tied to, to power that normal people can't get to uh, really just reflects that knowledge is power kind of thing, you know. Um, and if I can... Uh, and just think about it this way. So if you went back in time with uh with your cell phone right you had your cell phone and it and let's just for this particular moment um imagine that your phone could use the internet even back in the ancient <laughs> time right so hypothetically speaking uh, and you go back and you sit down with an ancient person and they start asking you stuff like man i wonder why my tooth hurts so you look in their mouth with their flashlight and then you get on the internet and you Google dentistry manuals, and then you perform uh, some very basic, uh, you know, dental surgery on this person. And then you go over here to this tree and you know that this tree's bark makes pain go away. They would look at you like you're a wizard, right? They would go like, how do you know all of this, this, this wisdom? Where did you get all of this stuff? And you'd hold your cell phone up and you go, this is my magic tablet. All of the knowledge of the world is contained within. And then someone would kill you and take your tablet from you. Um, <laughs> but that's just what happens. 
Um, but if you're talking about orcs, um, orcs are the the dark side of human nature. You know, uh, everybody has this part of them that's hard to control. Um, orcs look like us. They can talk like us. They can think like us. But they are they're controlled and they're driven by their base nature, right? So you have this this duality of I can control myself, but deep within me, there's something that I can't control. And that's what an orc is. So, you know, so the orcs are inside of all of us. So um, quick tangent on orcs. Yeah. Uh, in uh, the Tolkien universe, uh, mm-hmm. Middle Earth, uh, orcs were like corrupted elves, but yes. were there orcs prior to Middle Earth or was that a Tolkien development? Um, it depends on whether or not you want to use that word orc to mean what Tolkien meant it as an orc. Uh, there were always bestial versions of humans. Uh, like, if we go all like the way back Gollums to Epic of Gilgamesh. Stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so if you go all the way back to Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the first monsters that's introduced is this thing called Enkidu. Um, and he's sent by the gods to kill Gilgamesh. And he's this big hulking beast man thing that's all angry and has you know bestial power and he's destroying things he's running around raging stuff um but when they take him to the city and they give him civilization he calms down and he and gilgamesh become best friends right so you have this concept that orcs are built off of that human beings are are of two natures you know there's that old saying about there's two wolves inside of you and which one you feed is the one that you know wins but that's that's really true, and it's it becomes it, it becomes a trope because it's based in truth. Uh, you know, stereotypes have grains of truth in them. You know, so you see this twisted elf that becomes an orc in Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien did this because elves were supposed to be perfect creations. They were made by the gods or made by the first god to be like this perfect balance with nature kind of thing. And Melkor, the bad guy decides I'm going to screw it all up. Um, and I'm going to create these things that break all the rules that don't follow the, the guidelines that go off and do their own thing that spoil stuff. Um, but yeah, that's just, it's part of humans, uh, the, the dark side of us. And, and this is, this is in everything, you know, this is the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing. Uh, you know, it's the same premise and same concept. Before we get too far off this, I want to mention, if you want to hear uh, Shane talk more about Lord of the Rings uh, lore, <laughs> he has a, currently a two-part series, and he's going to continue it on, on the history of Middle-Earth mythology, creation, and all that stuff. Um, oh, yeah. That's been really fun. I've had a lot of fun doing that. Super cool stuff. So we're going to have uh, links to his channel in the show notes, and he's going to have those in his VODs or videos section, which you know, we call VODs. Um, so if you want to hear him nerd out on, like, do an actual presentation on uh, the history of Middle Earth as it is in the Middle Earth itself, uh, yep, that's yep. the place to go for that. You also and outed your... coming up pretty soon. You also outed yourself as, as an author. And even, I did. And you said that you don't like talking about it too much, but I'm wondering if we're going to be able to drag out of you some uh, some some links to some material where people might be able to find some of that. Uh, if you go to Amazon and type my name in, uh, you can find stuff that I've written. All right. Well, show notes, folks. Um, but this idea, <laughs> this idea of tropes, 
um, segues really well into like the next section of questions. Um, things become cliche and become tropes because they work so well, right? Because they're right. awesome, you know, and they really hit uh, the, the 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 perfect vibe for, vibration for uh, relating to humans, um, you know, our emotional resonance points. Um, but then they become cliche and they become tropes when it's just like, oosh, you just slide right into that. Like every <laughs> right. time, like just cause the groove is like so well worn. It's, it's it can be hard to like not step in it and then just get stuck. So we're like, you know, now we, uh, again, like our larger part of our audience, you know, and then the larger part of the, the culture that we all live in medieval Europe is sort of the, the default setting and aesthetic for, for fantasy that gets relied on uh to maybe a somewhat lesser degree there's samurai uh ninja you know some like eastern influences some of the more like you know the 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 bigger mainstream eastern influences pirates um those are sort of like the big three that um that come to mind but what what historical cultures societies settings are being ignored that you think have as much like rich depth to them that people might be able to go to to start trying to like find their way into different kinds of inspiration right that is such a great question uh and the answer is a little bit uh, and this is just going to sound silly but every culture uh every culture has a history that is worth studying but i know what you're asking is are there big ones that are out there that have huge impacts on the ancient world and stuff like that and yes we're gonna we're gonna redeem your uh rank three now (laughs) (laughs) yeah so if you if you look back in history there are a lot of things that get overlooked and this is partially to do with the fact that western culture that we live in western europe is in uh you know north and south america uh, we're we're all sort of dominated by Western themes, and when you go to school, you learn about Rome, you learn about Greece, and you might learn a little bit about, uh, you know, Egypt. But who goes to school and learns about the progressions of the dynasties in China or the different cultures in India or? the groups of people that developed in Central Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa. And there's not a lot of that because, well, first off, there's just not enough time to teach all of it. You know, the, I, in, in Worlds of One, I have to cover everything from the beginning of humanity from, you know, literal humans first becoming humans all the way through the Protestant Reformation. <laughs> and luck. I have to do that in one class and it's a sprint. Mm. So you just by necessity have to leave stuff out. Uh, I try to hit high notes and I try to be as inclusive as I can. But if you let me teach a class by myself, which is pretty much what I'm doing on my Twitch channel, I would cover so much more stuff. And the the big things that I would point people to if you're looking for the depth of culture that you might have in somewhere like Rome or Greece, where you can go back for hundreds of years and you have evolutions of different artistic styles and writing styles, 
that same sort of thing exists in Persia, uh, inside of what we would call today Iran. Uh, the Achaemenid Persians, the Parthians, and the Sassanids had a culture that stretched centuries that most people today don't really know anything about. Uh, they had incredibly detailed art. They had their own very beautiful architectural style. They have their own mythology. Uh, they have their own uh, scripture books. The, the big religion of the Persians is Zoroastrianism, which is something that people might have heard of but don't really know very much about. Uh, I could say the same thing about India, uh, but especially if, if you're looking for art resources, uh, the Mughal dynasty of India, uh, it's M-U-G-H-A-L, those guys have absolutely amazing artistic skills. It's the height of art inside of India, and they blend a lot of old Indian themes with Buddhist themes, Hindu themes, uh, Persian influence, uh, influence from other places in China. Uh, if you're looking, if you want to go look at China, uh, I mentioned that earlier, uh, ancient Chinese culture, the height of their artistic style is the Ming dynasty. And, and this is something that people might have, you know, like, oh, that's a Ming dynasty vase. <laughs> but the reason those are so coveted is because this is kind of the height of their artistic style. Um, but if you're going to look up China, you should also look up the Han dynasty, which is spelled like Han Solo, and the Tang dynasty, which is spelled like Tang, T-A-N-G. Um, and the Ottomans, the, the Ottoman Turks are uh, an empire that lasted for 700-something uh, years, and we don't really talk about them very much. Y you may have heard about them in World War I, and it's only, hey, the Ottoman dynasty fell apart. But they had incredible advances in calligraphy art. And if you, if you want to do anything like with visual writing, go check out the Ottoman stuff. Their uh, geometric patterns and uh, decorative style is, is stunning. And I, I mean, I've been to some of these places where they, they built this stuff and it's just, it's breathtaking. Uh, so Ottomans and the the Mughals, and, and I could give a million answers to that. Uh, but if you're just wanting some really big cultures that have a lot of stuff out there that's really easy to find, you know, check those people out. Uh, there's just there's so much stuff out there that I would love to to just kind of ramble about. But. What are some uh, Googleable locations that uh, like for architecture or uh, uh, whatever else that you think that would be like you said, mentioned places you've been to that yeah. people could Google and say, well, you know, there's tons of photos of them now because they still exist. Right. These people can use as reference. Um, just go to Google street view and walk around Istanbul. Um, if you want to see some Ottoman art stuff, uh, look at the blue mosque. Uh, one of the crowning achievements of Ottoman. Well, that's not really Ottoman. I shouldn't say that. Well, yeah, I guess it. Yeah, okay. You can go look up the Blue Mosque. That's a good one. I, I'm getting nitpicky with myself. <laughs> um, but uh, look up the. Well, and, and everybody's sort of seen the like the Tomb of the Dragon Emperor in China, you know, and that's one thing that people have a reference for. Um, but go look up the Forbidden City, uh, where the emperors lived, and just look at the, the stuff that's in there. Uh, or if you Google. Um, 
If you go to, a, and I know I keep going back to a Google search, but if, if you go to Google search and put in uh, Ottoman calligraphy uh, and you end up with people like Bay, uh, who is a really famous calligrapher, uh, you can see all that stuff. Um, the Taj Mahal, you know, if you've ever seen the Taj Mahal, that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about um, in, in India. Um, but th there's, there's so much out there that if you just Googled any of those cultures and art and clicked over to images, you'll be inundated with stuff. Yeah, it probably will take some digging because you, it, it, they don't have necessarily the presence in the typical storehouses that we're familiar with. You know, so you have to maybe peel down in some layers. But that, that would be cool in itself because along that path, you're probably going to run into a whole bunch of other offshoots yeah. and you could be... And, and I will say this, uh, one of the... And, and this is me trying to find silver linings and things, but one of the the benefits of COVID happening last year and still going into this year is that a lot of museums have decided that they're going to put some of their stuff in virtual tours. Uh, so like the Imperial Household Museum in Japan, if you want to wa uh, go walk around in it virtually, you can see items that used to be in the Imperial Household. Um, if you want to, if you go to Google Earth and go to the Palace of Versailles, you can street view inside the Palace of Versailles. Uh, you can street view inside uh, the British Museum in London. You can street view inside of the Uffizi Gallery in, uh, in Florence. You can do that in the Met uh, in New York. So that's a great resource that I think has come out of this where people can't go see things physically anymore, but these museums have recognized, Hey, we still want to be open to people. So uh, there is a website and I can't remember, I should have looked this up. I apologize, but there's a website that had collected a lot of that that came out last year. So if you Google or if, if you search for uh, virtual museums, I know that the Smithsonian was getting on board with a lot of that stuff. Um, uh, virtual museum tours and then sort of figure out, you know, what's there. And, uh, and, and I'll say this too, like if there's anybody out there that feels like you're stuck and you want to look at something historic or talk to somebody, uh, just shoot me a message. Uh, I, I love talking with people that are in that area, mostly because um, I really enjoy feeling like what I spent my life doing is valuable. <laughs> uh, so you, you should know. charge $50 an hour for this service. Um, hey. I, I've considered that. So for the moment, everybody just shoot me stuff on uh, Twitch or come hang out. I, I don't mind. Um, I understand that skills should be charged uh, and, and I'm working towards that. Uh, I, I'm, but if you ever need a, a quick fix, like, hey, man, I, I really want to draw this and I don't know what to draw, shoot me a message. I'd be happy to point you in the right direction. And I do that a lot with art friends. Uh, you know, I've talked with several of the people that others might recognize here on Twitch. If you uh, hung around long enough, you'll see me in somebody's room going, hey, you should do this. <laughs> so speaking of your Twitch channel, you often will, uh, your, the basis of most of your streams is going through this period of history. What happened where? So right. And so there's a lot of stories that come from that. So for a narrative element, people can look to history for these 
uh, is not just art, but for, for also uh, the stories of you know who fought who over what and yeah, sure. what elements were involved. Uh, most of this, most of what we know, has been based off of like uh, the War of the Roses, from which was used to make uh, yeah. Game of Thrones uh, slash Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, what are some other uh, periods that are easily digestible for people? I know that like there's a lot of uh, really interesting history from like the time periods that we don't talk about as much, but like uh, what are some rich elements of uh, stories that people can di- that uh, people looking for narrative elements to borrow from history can find like readily on YouTube for plot elements to steal? Yeah, so that's the great thing about history right now is that so much of it is becoming more accessible because of the internet. And, you know, if you want to find intrigue, you can find it. The, the best places that I would look, if you want to try to find like lots of backstabby underhanded double dealing kind of stuff, um, look up uh, goings on of the Ottoman Sultan's palace. Uh, it's called Topkapi. It's T-O-P-K-A-P-I, Topkapi Palace. Uh, so during the height of the Ottoman Empire, these sultans would have hundreds of wives and hundreds of children, and everybody was like at each other's throats and constantly assassinating people. And there's all this, you know, super political intrigue that a lot of people don't know about. But if you thought that, like, if you dig the whole political faction playing one side off of another thing that's in Game of Thrones, yeah, check out Ottoman politics uh, at Topkapi Palace and the harem there. Uh, it, that's crazy stuff. If you want some really good wars that have, you know, the dramatic turns of fate where the good guys win and you end up with this eukaryotic scenario at the midst of nowhere, um, Look up Roman history. One of the things that the Romans really love to do is brag about their military campaigns. Um, Julius Caesar wrote this whole string of basically play-by-play, uh, I guess, dissections of his battles when he was up fighting the Gauls. Uh, so Caesar's Gallic Wars, you can go read all of this stuff. And it has even battle tactics, you know, like... I put my armies here and they attacked with this then da, 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 and I pulled out this victory. So, I mean, th- there are things like that all over the place. Uh, I mean, if you want good love stories, Oh, where would we go? Um, uh, ancient China during the, the war of the three kingdoms, uh, you have all of these stories about how, these people end up on the wrong side of the battles and they, they, you know, they're brothers, but they hate each other. And I'm marrying this woman, but she's from the other side of the faction and that's going to cause political trouble. And we're, we're star crossed and I'm putting my faith in this. And the, the, the romance of the three kingdoms is a, as a big book that was written uh, to discuss this period of time. Um, and, and if anybody's familiar with video games, if you've ever played Dynasty Warriors uh, or any of those games, that's based in that time period of China. But there's a, a humongous document that you can go read uh, for that stuff. Um, there's also a lot of, a little bit of all of that um, in histories that come out of Arabia. Um, so if you read um, 
people like Ibn Khaldun, um, you're going to get some of that stuff. Um, man, there's just so many sources that I could just sit here and kind of ramble off. Uh, if you had a specific thing that you wanted to look for, I could find something that would approach that, but just letting me go, uh, is probably, uh, so, uh, a never ending story. We were talking about religion earlier and right. my mind immediately goes to the crusades, which sure. each one of those crusades has is its own narrative. Oh, uh, absolutely. But, yeah. Yeah. But beyond that, uh, anything like religious conflict that might pop up, like mixing of religion and politics. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, if you want to, if you want to read about the, the first conflicts between Christianity and Islam, uh, you can read some of the Byzantine historians. Um, if you want to read about, oh man, so religion and religions overlapping and coming into contact with each other is very frequent. Uh, that happens a lot in India. Um, there's a series of histories that were written by Buddhists and a competing series of histories that were written by Hindus in India that talk all about the political machinations between rulers that uh, started life as one of these religions and then maybe patronized another religion. Uh, you know, I was born in a Hindu caste and I became king and I'm now going to give money to these Buddhists um, to rebuild their temples. And, oh, but that's that's now making all of the high-class Brahmin Indian people very angry because I shouldn't be doing that. And um, there's a, an account of this big ruler named Ashoka, uh, who was a uh, ruler of uh, the Mauryan Empire, who started off as a pretty horrible guy. And he was nominally a Hindu, but didn't really follow very much. Uh, and he goes on this great campaign against these enemies called the Kalinga and basically wipes them completely out. And then sort of standing in the rubble of their culture goes, that was a bad move. I need to find something better to do with my life. And then converts to Buddhism and becomes one of the most popular Buddhist rulers in history. So, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff like that that's out there. So that's for the actual histories of real world events. But what yeah, about yeah. Uh, like stories that were told, narrative uh, stories? Oh, okay. Yeah. No, yeah, that's fine. So that's fine. I was asking for the prior thing, but now I'm also asking for the next thing. Okay. Um, so if you want like big cultures that have stories, man, there are so many of them out there and, and I'll try to stay away from the, the European ones. Uh, but well, you know, actually let me, let me say this. So here's the, here's a question, you know, we've got two really smart guys in here, uh, and me and, uh, <laughs> who, uh, you two guys. So, Here's the thing, like when when we're talking about trying to find uh, inspiration from stories and trying to find stuff that we might not know about, do we really know about what we think we know about? No, you know. So think about this. You know, we've all heard of Athena. We know Athena was the a Greek goddess of victory, but. Do either of you guys know any myths that concern Athena? Not since middle school. No. She had an owl, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she's the goddess of wisdom uh, and owls represented wisdom. So she's frequently associated with the owl. She uh, but the did... reason she is uh, associated with wisdom is because her mother was 
uh, an early wisdom goddess and ended up getting pregnant by Zeus. And there was this story that got told that this chick's daughter was going to end up causing trouble. So Zeus ate her. Uh, Zeus ate his wife or his, well, not his wife, his mistress, because she got pregnant and Zeus didn't want to get killed by this person. And then Zeus got a really bad headache and they cracked open his skull and Athena popped out. So she's literally the embodiment of wisdom. So uh, <laughs> I would tell people, Gnarly, man. Like, like, don't discount stuff that you're familiar with. I, and I know that one of the things that, that happens really frequently with my students is that they see how excited I get about all these different cultures. And because they don't have a basis, any of this stuff, they kind of shut down, right? They, they, they're just kind of imposed with how much is out there and the depth of everything that's out there. But you don't have to start with something like the, the tale of Genji from Japan. You don't have to start with something like the Enuma Elish or these things that you've never heard of. Go pick up a copy of Bullfinch's mythology and and read some stories about Zeus and Hermes and King Arthur. You know, go go read the Bible. A lot of people, you know, know all these stories from the Bible, but have you actually read the Bible? Uh, go read Beowulf. Like everybody probably had to read Beowulf in high school, but did you read it trying to appreciate it, or did you read it because you had to? So people might know the story of Beowulf because they saw the the movie or they read the book, you know, 20 years ago. But if you want to draw some cool, rad Viking stuff, go read Beowulf. You already kind of know what's going on. You already have a foot in the door. It doesn't have to be something that's, you know, foreign. You don't have to go read all of the Thousand and One Nights. You don't have to know who Scheherazade is. Uh, you know, if, if you've seen the movie Aladdin, go read the actual story of Aladdin. You'll know, you'll be familiar with the characters. Uh, if you've seen little mermaid or if you've seen basically any disney movie you know go read the actual story you don't have to jump in the deep end you can use what you know to like to ease yourself into this stuff you, you don't have to go off into the the crazy world but if you want to man there's so much stuff out there if we're just talking about like who produced the most writing man there are tens of thousands of pages of chinese stories that go from you know, very, very basic stuff like local folklore uh, all the way up to these big epic stories that explain their entire world and how they got there. Uh, you, you can read, uh, and I know I've mentioned this now twice, but the Arabian night stories that come out of Arabia during the, um, uh, during that period of kind of the height of the, the Islamic world, that's really cool stories. Uh, there are, because of the internet now, we can read stuff like the entire ancient Maya, uh, Mayan creation accounts called the Popol Vuh. You can go read this stuff online. It's been translated into English. Um, the Mayans had just dozens and dozens of stories. Uh, you can read entire volumes of, uh, of these folk stories. The Viking sagas, uh, there are hundreds of pages of those things and dozens and dozens of stories. You can go read the Edda, that E-D-D-A. That's the sort of uh, collected work of Viking mythology. You know, so if, you've, if you know who Thor is, if you've ever seen any of the Marvel Thor movies and you want to get some really cool inspiration about 
how the Vikings actually ran stuff, go read the Edda. You know, it's out there. You can find it and you can Google Edda full text and it'll pop the whole thing up for you. Um, so I, I love this answer to that question. Like it, you brought it around to something that I, I don't know why I, it's this effort to like go way, way far out to try and find something new. Yeah. But you've pointed out this great thing that it's like, well, the stuff that you thought was old, it's not so much old. It's just the, the stories that we've been told about these stories is what's old. Right. And there's yeah. still so much great stuff in those old stories that, you know, we, we might be familiar with um, their, their current incarnations but their old source material, which may be easier to find than some of you know these you know you know further off texts, um, still has like so much stuff in it that we have just like for what we were talking about earlier. You can only teach so much. So even when you right, are yeah. learning these, you know, like God forbid, you know, like all of your uh, encounters with these types of things are from like movies and TV. You know, but <laughs> right. Even when even if you're learning them in school, maybe the uh you know the the knowledge that you're getting from uh that curriculum is maybe a little bit deeper than a movie or a tv but <laughs> but you can still go so much so much deeper um there's a there's a question in here that i i, I feel it coming up and so i i don't know i feel like this intellectual honesty to acknowledge it so i don't feel like i've just sort of like tried to uh, bypass it for comfort's sake before we were starting um Moose, and maybe you want to clarify this 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 question because I don't want to just like speak for you. Um, had mentioned, you know, maybe wanting to talk a little bit about um, cultural sensitivity or like you know, like when when research into culture becomes cultural appropriation. Right. This is this is a, um, a a subject that you know in current political climate has definitely gained a lot of traction. I think you know to some degree uh, for very good reason. And then, like in other places, maybe it it's getting used as a, as a weapon where it shouldn't. What are your thoughts on ways to go about researching and incorporating material from sources that doesn't tread into, um, you know, that cultural appropriation? I guess. Yeah. So that's something that um, that's been kind of uh, an issue for a long time inside of history, uh, especially since the founding of the modern field of archaeology in the 1800s, is this idea of who owns what. And in today's world, in history and archaeology, there's still a lot of like very physical arguments about who owns what, literally who owns what. Uh, the best example of this that I can give you are the Elgin marbles. Uh, part of the Parthenon from Athens is in England because this British guy named Lord Elgin stole them and Greece wants them back, but Britain refuses to give it back. You know, so there's that level of like literal and physical cultural appropriation. That's still a very big deal in history and archeology. span But the thing that I would say, if you're going into it with a very clear understanding that this might not be yourself, you know, if you don't have any cultural ties to these things and you're trying to understand another person uh, or another group of people or another culture or something like that, 
you you have to try to put a lot of awareness on your own bias. You know, you have to be very aware of yourself. Um, you have to go into this discussion with the understanding that you are interpreting something that you yourself don't necessarily have any sort of experience with. You know, so if I'm going to research, um, well, I'm, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something that I've been doing lately. Uh, one of the things that I'm working on uh, sort of in my own time right now is really spending a lot of time examining the history of racism in the United States. Uh, and if, if we're going to talk about cultural appropriation, we might as well just go ahead and hit it right where it is. You know, let's just be honest about it. Um, there's been a big argument going on in sort of the larger public sphere about the difference between the 1619 project or the 1776 project and, you know, how we're going to teach history in schools and are we going to teach people about slavery or how are we going to shape all this stuff and how we're going to frame all this stuff. And, and it's been tough. Uh, you know, so what I've done is I have gone to sources that have come out of the, the black and African American community. I have been reading books that people that have been in that scenario and that situation have written and taking their word for it. You know, uh, I haven't gone to this whole scenario going, Hey, I'm a middle-class white guy uh, with a, a couple college degrees. I clearly know more about this and I'm clearly going to be able to properly put all this in historical context because I was not in the middle of that. You know, I didn't live through slavery. Uh, my family, about three generations or four, well, let me see. My family, about five generations back, owned slaves. Uh, so I had to be cognizant of that, right? But if you're going to explore a culture, you have to be willing to put your interpretation on a little bit of a hiatus. And I'm not saying that you can't parse things for accuracy and compare that to other sources and verify things and, you know, go through the proper motions of, uh, you know, getting multiple opinions and building your case. But, you know, it, it, if you're going to, let's say Joby wants to paint um, a picture of um, some some people from the Ottoman Empire, right? And Joby wants to paint an accurate picture of how these people are uh, are experiencing their religion. So Joby wants to paint these people inside of a mosque. Well, you have to be aware of the scenario that that's not something that a lot of people would be very comfortable with. Uh, there are a lot of uh, a lot of cultural standards and religious ideology within the Muslim community about how to depict individuals and how to depict religious symbols. So Joby might draw that picture and it me, and I'm going to try to make Joby the bad guy here, uh, by the way, he, he is would never though. do this kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I, I would totally <laughs> you know? do something like this too. <laughs> uh, Just not even know. know what's going on. Right. So you have to, you have to be aware enough to understand that there are things that you don't understand. Right. But you, can, you have to be you have to be willing to admit, like, I don't know everything about this, so I should try to do my due diligence. I should try to look all this stuff up. I should maybe 
uh, you know, read some stuff from those people, read some stuff from that culture, uh, try to get a better handle on how I'm going to do this stuff. And I know it sounds like a whole bunch of work, but you could figure that out in maybe five minutes of, you know, reading is you, you know, you start reading about Islamic images. And if you Google that, the first thing that's going to pop up is Charlie Hebdo. Uh, drawing Muhammad, people in France getting shot because they had a draw Muhammad contest. And you're going to go, oh, maybe I need to be a little bit careful about how I draw this picture. You know, but and, is there a difference between, uh, obviously, uh, wearing, we've learned that wearing a feathered headdress as a Halloween costume is bad. It's a bad type of uh, cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. But is there a difference between that and like having a, a fantasy race of, let's say, uh, lizard men? in the Warhammer 40k universe where they have right. a feathered headdress. Um, I don't know if I'm the, in a position to speak on that. Um, I would say that if you are doing something that is done with an open mind and not to be stereotypical or denigrating, um, you are in a better spot than if you just go into it blind. Uh, but you know, I, I don't have any native American ancestry, so I don't know how I would feel about that. And that's the, the thing we all have to remember is that just because we look at a group of people and think one thing, that's not necessarily how they think about themselves. And, and this actually gets me to, um, to something that I do with my students quite a bit. Uh, when, when we get into topics like this and we talk about cultural appropriation and we talk about stereotyping and, you know, identities, one of the things that I ask them is to try to think of one word that completely sums up themselves as an individual. Like you only get one word or one thing that completely symbolizes you as an individual. And Boring. Ask, <laughs> well, I mean, like, well, I don't know about that. People have never given me that one before. Like one one noun, not adjective, uh, that completely describes themselves. You know, I can't do that. I could give you son because I'm a son. I could give you husband because I'm a husband. But does one noun completely encapsulate who I am? And 99 times out of 100, uh, people aren't moose. And they go, no, I can't do that. Uh, and then I ask them, so why do you label other people with one word? You know, if you don't want, if you can't do it for yourself, how can you justify doing that for an entire group of people? Or, you know, how do we just say, oh, those are Muslim people or, oh, those are uh, Christian people or those are black people or those are white people? Uh, you know, so you have to be aware that an identity is not just the, the images and the way that we dress and the way that we are. It's also how we think about ourselves and how we feel about ourselves and how we view the world. And that's a little bit harder to explain sometimes. So I, I don't know if, I, I don't know. I, I mean, you, you do whatever you can, but you also have to be willing to understand that you might goof it up. And when you do goof it up, you just have to own it and try not to do it again. Yeah. And I guess if somebody comes at you and is like, Hey, that you're treading in some bad territory here, it's, it's worth listening to. And not just oh, yeah, having a, a knee jerk reaction to, but it's interesting, you know, that you, you said, well, you don't know if you're, qualified to you know to answer that question directly and I, I definitely see where you're coming from and why you say that but that one word thing I think that there's an interesting part of that you know that does have like a good answer to it where you know Moose was saying like the difference between um, 
wearing a, a a Native American headdress for Halloween and then creating a fantasy race that has a, a feathered headdress. So in that, you could imagine like, well, if if your fantasy race of lizard men that wore feathered headdresses lived in teepees and, you know, like smoke, quote, peace pipes, you know, and... Right. and all that kind of crap. Well, then maybe you're you're getting you're getting a little bit weird. Um, but if you like are just taking the inspiration of a feathered headdress and you're elaborating on it and turning it into something sort of like new and innovative, you know, like mashing it together with like lots of other things, now you've you've taken an inspiration rather than a- appropriation and you've avoided right. the one word. So whereas, you know, like just like all of the the, the Indian tropes that you could go along with you know that with the feathered headdress that's sort of now you're going into like the the one word that you're describing a culture with the one word whereas the right. other thing is like you're going into all of the you know variations and textures and that gets back to uh you know your your preparation and your world building you know do you have a reason for that uh are you doing it just because it looks cool and that's okay you know uh, but maybe your your lizard race um, fought with the bird people and they they killed the bird people and took trophies uh, from the bird people and they wear them into battle to scare the bird people. Uh, you know, maybe you have a, a reason behind that that is is yours. But even then, you, you also have to be careful because, you know, you can't just go, you know, completely copying and pasting stuff. So copying and pasting stuff is just bad. It, yeah, no matter what you're looking for <laughs> like cultural plagiarism basically you know so. right um so this also leads into something that's i think semi-related you know like if if you're if you are seeking inspiration from history you know or even you're just researching history um what are the risks of being led astray and how do we avoid them you know we think about the uh, the eyewitness yeah. account and how this is a, a notoriously bad source of information. Like talking to somebody who was there at the scene of the crime is not always reliable. So we're talking about people right. that were at the scene of the crime a thousand <laughs> years ago. ago. <laughs> yeah. So what, like how, how does, how do historians account for that? And then like as laymen, you know, who are, yeah. who are, who are dummies, how do we account for that? <laughs> I don't think anybody's dummy. Uh, so there is an entire sub branch of history and linguistics and literature uh, called source criticism. And this is something that came out of uh, the 1700s and 1800s where people during the enlightenment period figured out we can't just take everything at face value, right? Like we can't just go, Oh, this document exists. So we have to take it, uh, uh, for face value. And, and one of the great examples of this, uh, there's this uh, ancient document that the Catholic Church was using. It's called the Donation of Constantine. Um, and it was this document, and it said that Constantine, the emperor, had donated uh, certain amounts of land and properties and, and uh, rights to the Catholic Church. And this was something that uh, the Catholic Church had used for a really long time, centuries, uh, to validate certain powers that the, the Pope had. And during the Enlightenment, this guy, uh, decides I'm gonna, I'm going to look at this document. I, d- I don't know what this document really says. So let's examine it. And through source criticism, he found out like, oh no, this is a complete forgery uh, because the way that the wording is used, they're using words 
that weren't actually created at that time. And the way that they're phrasing this was not way, the way that people in the 300s would have phrased this. Uh, and he did that by comparing uh, the donation of Constantine to other existing Latin sources and uh, kind of sussed out that the church had forged this whole thing. And this whole concept that they were basing it on was just uh, absolute, you know, uh, well, I mean, it was just, you know, made up out of nowhere. Hmm. So and that's just one example of this larger concept of source criticism. So there is a lot of that that goes on inside of the historical field uh, where just because we find a document and it says something doesn't mean that we have to um, accept it for what it says. People in the ancient world are just like us. Uh, they Just without the internet. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it, like the, their motivations and their desires are the same as ours. You know, they, they want to make themselves look better. They're going to sanitize things. They're going to tell the big fish story. You know, like I caught a fish and it was this big. Uh, you know, I fought an army and there were 50,000 men in that army. Uh, and so what we have to do is take that as a starting point. And this is where archaeology comes in and comparative literature comes in, because then you have to find stuff that correlates with this material. And sometimes you can work it out and sometimes you can't. Um, we have to take a lot of people at their word sometimes which is, you know, kind of dangerous. We have only a couple of histories of certain periods of time where, you know, like we have Thucydides who writes the history of the Peloponnesian Wars, but we know that he fought on one of the sides of the Peloponnesian Wars, but he's writing about both sides of the Peloponnesian Wars. So is the stuff that he's saying about the bad guy really super accurate? Uh, well, how do, we, how do we know that? Well, we can compare that to... Uh, architectural stuff where we've dug up the buildings, you know, so Thucydides says, oh, we went over here and we sacked this village and we sacked this city and we burned down the city. So we go dig the city up and using all these fun um, archaeological things, we find a giant burn layer that corresponds to that period of time. And we go, oh, he was telling the truth. They really did burn this city because, you know, you look at the wall of the, the city and, you know, it's got three inches of ash in it which shows up in the ancient world, you know, so you compare that to uh, existing archeological finds uh, and then you apply common sense. You know, if we know that the city that this guy ruled had about 20,000 people that lived in it. And he said that uh, he fought this enemy and his army was 50,000 people big. We go, no, dude, we know exactly where you lived. You lived in, you know, you, you lived in the city of Uruk and we've excavated Uruk and we know how many people lived in Uruk because we, you know, base how many houses they had, how many people they had in the region based on villages around the region. And we know that you had an army that was maybe 5,000 guys and you're saying you had 50,000 guys, you're lying. But he did that because he wanted to be the big bad guy, you know. So there's a lot of textual criticism that has gone into our history world. And that happens constantly. And it's not just on ancient stuff. You know, this is stuff that applies all the way across the board. People that were alive in World War I or World War II or people that were, uh, you know, people are still digging out Freedom of Information Act stuff. You know, it, it seems like every three or four months, something pops up out of the American government. And it's like, hey, uh, the government lied to us about this thing. And we now have the textual proof that shows it. So there's a lot of that stuff going on. But if you are 
just interested in looking up some history stuff, right? Uh, you can do that pretty easily. There are a lot of history books out there that are pretty easy to get by. Uh, the one thing that I would say, though, well, I, actually a few things. Uh, look who the publisher is. You know, if, if you want to go find a book online and, and something that I said has struck a chord, like, man, I really want to read a book about uh, those Mughal Empire people in, in India. Uh, you can go to Amazon and see who the publisher is. And just go to the publisher's website and see what else they published, how long they've been in business. That doesn't always you know, mean that everything that they're saying is legit. But, you know, if it's Oxford University Press or if it's, you know, Random House Publishing, these big books companies, they're going to have peer reviewers who look at those manuscripts before they ever get published that are going to put that under a lot of scrutiny and revision. Um, and look at the reviews, you know, go to uh, Goodreads or Amazon and scroll down and see what people are saying about this stuff. Um, and also look at when it was published. One thing about history is that it changes a lot. And I, I can't get <laughs> I can't get certain people uh, to understand how much history changes because people come up to me all the time and certain individuals, and I won't name them or even give you uh, certain positions of uh, certain people with with some level of authority over me. We'll just say it that way. <laughs> um, are of this opinion that, you know, history is already done and you don't actually need to keep up to date on this stuff. You don't need to worry about changing your courses or coming up with new ideas or stuff like that. It doesn't take a lot to teach a history class. It doesn't take a lot to, to keep a history class going. Right. But it changes all the time. Like just last year, we found out all sorts of stuff that we didn't know the year before. And if you look at a history book and it was written, you know, back in the 1930s, well, guess what? That book was written almost certainly with a gigantic Marxist slant because the people in history that wrote between about the 1920s and the 1960s were almost completely all Marxists. So you might be reading something where they're interpreting all of this through class struggle inside of the culture, but you know, that doesn't mean that it's accurate. Uh, it might actually be something totally different. And we know now that, you know, examining this through this lens was not the right way to do it. So if your book that you're reading is a hundred years old or 60 years old, you might not be reading the stuff that's the best. So, you know, um, check to see when it was published. <laughs> but as far as inspiration goes, it doesn't matter if it's accurate or not, as long as it's interesting, right? Well, well yeah. And see, that's the thing, you know, if, if you're, if you're looking for, uh, an interesting image, you know, you can find a lot of old books that came out in the early 1900s and, and find hardcovers of these things online for two or three bucks, you know, go look at the old, um, the old collections that were in the British museum or that were in the, uh, national museum in Athens or the museum in Cairo. Uh, you can find these, you know, collections of stuff that they had on display for super cheap online. And if you're just looking for visual inference, uh, stuff it, it doesn't necessarily matter too terribly much if you're just trying to get visually um inspired but if you're trying to write a story set in a particular period of time that's a whole different uh, situation um you know if you're trying to be historically accurate and you find this statue and this guy says oh yeah it's from this city and then we find out no it actually wasn't it wasn't from there at all that was traded from this other culture um that's that that stuff happens a lot 
So uh, I'm a bit of a dyslexic moron, and I can't read books. I can't read uh, long text to get more nuanced uh, information out of them. I need either the cliff notes or I need a, a movie or a TV show to do all that interest, mm. interesting stuff for me. What are some interesting sources that you don't think are like immediately uh, abundant in today's uh, cultural conscience? Like, you well, know, I, so I run a history stream on Thursday nights. <laughs> <laughs> Twitch.tv um, forward slash S-H-A-N-E-M-C-I-N-N-I-S. Yeah, so that's me. Um, and I talk about stuff. Well, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I try to talk about stuff in a very relatable way, even if it's some weird esoteric version of history that a lot of people haven't had access to. I try to break it down like it's you know it's just people. Um, but go to a lot of those uh, the web series stuff. Like, and I, I mentioned this. I use this all the time. But uh, like, there's Three Minute History, which is a series on YouTube. Uh, there's Crash Course History which is a series on YouTube. Um, if you're looking for kind of shorter books that take really big concepts and kind of get them down to the boilerplate, uh, there is a whole series of books that are put out by Oxford University Press called Very Short Introductions. And none of them are over, I think, 110 pages, 120 pages. And they have pictures and stuff too. And all of them are like seven or eight bucks. Um, and these are really well put together, scholarly researched books. They get people that are uh, usually scholars in this area that have credentials that put these little short intros together. And there's about, gosh, I mean, there's probably 45 of those. They're very short introductions and in all the different phases of Rome, all the big ancient religions. Uh, India stuff, China stuff, Japan, um, industrial revolution, communism, fascism. If you go to Amazon and just very short introduction, Oxford, that there are probably now almost a hundred of those because they're publishing like 10 or 11 of them a year. So if you don't want to read, you know, a 450 page book and you want to get just like the highlights of something, I would tell you to go there. Those are excellent. I've got about a dozen of them. Um, in the chat, David Peterson is asking, we can't hear you, Joby. In the chat, David Peterson is asking, uh, what about history podcasts? Are there any, um, you mentioned this earlier that you don't listen to podcasts too much, but are there any that you are familiar with that you would recommend? Uh, there are not any that I'm familiar with. And that's <gasps> probably a giant gaping hole in my knowledge set, but I, I don't know of any history podcasts that are any, uh, that are up there. Um, I know that there were, um, that there are a few on mythology, but I can't remember what the name of it is. Um, can I can I step in for you? <laughs> in that for a while, I was listening to those um, hardcore history. Yeah, so there's one. Yeah, history on fire is good too. Um, but yeah, I I I'm a horrible source for that. Um, At this I decided point, to make one myself instead of going out with everybody else's. That that was going to actually going to be one of the things that, that I wanted to plug in here. Uh, you should have a podcast. Well, I've thought about recording the episodes and putting them up as a podcast, but um, my technical limitations right now are pretty stretched as it is. And me trying to record things and get capture cards and all of that stuff is just not in the budget. Fair well, enough. the thing about the... I can talk about this off, off stream, but uh, 
you can actually use OBS to do the recording. And then yeah, you can... and I've, I've tried that. Uh, and the process of recording and streaming basically tacks out my computer. <laughs> and it starts spinning the hard drive like mad. And the fan doesn't shut off. And it gets about five degrees hotter in the room. <laughs> that sounds fun. Yeah, I need a new computer. Uh, and I'm working on on putting one of those together. And when Bitcoin goes back down to a manageable level and nobody's trying to mine it anymore, I can get another graphics card. Um, but yeah, those are about 100% more expensive than they need to be right now. Um, well, I think that uh, we're coming to the tail end of this. I, I always take notes in, you know, and I print out the, the outline of our questions and I always like scribble in notes, you know, and I think like to date, this is um, the most notes that <laughs> I have scribbled on uh, the margins and on the backs of the the paper. So this was fucking awesome, dude. Thank you so much. Um, just a, a couple of questions to tie it all together. Um, yeah. Well, uh, where would you like people to find you? We've we've mentioned and uh, clicked a link about your 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 Twitch channel. Uh, a couple of times and that'll definitely be in the show notes. Is there anywhere else yeah. that you would like people to find you? Um, I have social media. I am bad at social media. My Instagram and Twitter is at some history guy. Uh, all one word. And you are welcome to follow me there, but I do not very frequently get on there. Uh, I started that initially when I was doing uh, my Twitch stream to try to generate some, um, some content and some traffic, but people from Instagram don't leave Instagram and uh, people from Twitter don't care about Twitch very much. And in, in my experience, uh, it's different for art because you all have something visual to show off. If I'm just posting a tweet that's like, Hey, I'm a guy and I come talk. So come talk to me. It's a little bit harder to generate that stuff, but it's there. Um, I also have a discord where I hang out pretty frequently um, and if you go to my Twitch page, uh, there's a link to that. And I think Joey's going to post a link to that too. Um, yeah, that's yeah, definitely. the social media that I use the most. And I quite like that. Uh, I like the, uh, the ability that I can, um, I can give answers to people. And we, if we if get into a good conversation, we can just click the button and we can talk with each other. Um, yeah. Because some, a lot of this stuff, as has been very clearly uh, shown today, I, can ramble and if people go that's not what i want and i've rambled for 15 minutes they can i can tell by looking at them like oh they're they're cutting out on me <laughs> yeah been... so check me out on discord uh come uh to the the twitch channel uh, i stream every thursday night uh, at uh, 1900 hours central standard time um i stream every other tuesday Sometimes we do multiple Tuesdays in a row uh, doing viewer request stuff um, because I wanted to be able to talk about my history that I wanted to talk about in historical order, which we do on Thursday night. Uh, but then I also wanted to answer what, what people wanted to talk about. So on Tuesdays, every other Tuesday, usually um, we have a viewer request. So the next one coming up is on the, the 16th and we're doing history of pirates, which is what the, the crowd wanted to do. Um, and we did Japanese mythology last time. Uh, so, Have you considered co-streaming to YouTube? I have considered that. I don't know with the limitations I have on hardware if that's going to be something that would work. 
Um, My understanding is that you stream to one place and then that one place then splits the feed. Yeah. Oh. Re restream. Well, that's not, that's interesting. Yeah. So uh, I'll have to check that out. Just don't tell Twitch. There's a whole big crowd over there and I need to get one of those uh, little bots that loops everything back into Twitch for chat and stuff. So. And uh, for the viewers who are watching this visually, they saw a puppy leave your stream. Yes. And they should know that <laughs> one of the point redemptions on your Twitch channel is to call the puppy to yes. receive pets and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, the dog's name is Kaylee. She's named after uh, Kaylee Fry, the mechanic on the Firefly uh, ship Serenity. Um, so we're, we're nerds all the way around. Uh, I've got all kinds of stuff and the the, mar the walls behind me they are Gundam models and transformers and all kinds of stuff like that. So we have and now it's a part of the show where we talk about the inspiration between uh, uh, into it goes into Firefly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I could talk about that for a while too, but <laughs> that's American. That's American history. Who wants to know anything about that? <laughs> well, I could talk about American history until everybody's tired of listening. We'll um, we'll have not be too fast. We'll have you back for that. Um, hey man, yeah, but uh, but one more question. Um, before we fully end it, uh, outside of work, what's something that is happening in the world that you're excited about? Um, so I, I, I have watched the show long enough to know that that question was coming. And I've thought about that probably longer and harder than <laughs> any of the other questions that I thought might come up today. And the answer and is nothing. Uh, no, no, I, I, man, I'm, I'm excited about a lot of stuff, but I'll say this and I want to preface this whole uh, answer with, uh, this is not me trying to fan service, uh, Joby and Moose or blow smoke up Joby and Moose's rear end. Uh, I love the fact that people are getting interested in history. Uh, and I love the fact that the internet lets that happen. Uh, I, I mentioned this up at the top and I'll come full circle to say, History doesn't have to be boring, and I'm so glad that there are ways that I can get to people that are interested in history, that want to learn stuff, that don't have to do this in in a way that they're forced to. You know, everybody's got to go to history class, and it makes it boring. Or you get taught history by a coach who's more interested in the game Friday night than the subject that he's teaching. Um, the fact that there are people that are interested in this stuff, the fact that it is applicable to people's lives and the fact that people are figuring that out, just, it, it makes me happy. Uh, when I first started my stream, I had, I had very low hopes. Uh, I, I was worried that um, my affiliate would get taken away because I didn't get high enough viewer ratings and uh, all of that stuff. And it has been amazing to me how much people have responded to this kind of stuff. And it's not just me. Uh, I'm glad that people are interested in learning across the board. And I'm so glad that we live in a time period where that is able to happen. People ask me all the time, uh, you know, if you could go back and live in any period in the world, when would you go back and live? And I would say right now, uh, I know that's we get to see the end of it all. That's the important well, part. Well, I mean, we we have medicine and we have electricity, and I can go get a burger from a, a shop, and I don't have to cook it. And <laughs> you know, we we have everything that we have, but we have this amazing tool called the internet that is the greatest single invention that humans have ever made, and it has been used mostly for pornography and cat pictures. 
but people are figuring out that you can use it to learn and that there is stuff out there that you can go find and you don't have to go just to some, you know, Ivy league college to learn about this stuff. You can go find it if you just look for it a little bit. And it um, also brought us QAnon. So, <laughs> well, yeah, it did. And it brought a whole bunch of stuff that, that you know, is not so great, but I mean, that's what happens with any new technology, you know? So, but I'm uh, glad that people are excited about learning and not just about history, but just about everything. And that's really, really gassing my gears up. I was so excited about doing this. I was so stoked the whole week. <laughs> well, that makes me happy to hear, man, because it was uh, mutually beneficial for sure. It was a lot of fun. So thank you again very, very much, man. Um, look Absolutely. forward. Yeah, look forward to uh, seeing you again soon. Uh, I'm going to wave goodbye, and then I'm going to hit the end of the record. <laughs>